Raising up a generation to be wise and have a biblical worldview ranks as a top goal of parents and teachers today. And that is precisely why classical Christian schools spend so much time reading and studying books from the medieval period. I know I totally missed this in my own education, and I suspect you did too. So what do the medievals have to do with raising up a generation to be successful and equipped for the 21st century? Well, a lot more than you might think. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies here live in person with David Goodwin. How are you doing, David? Hey, doing well, Davies. Happy New Year to you. It's good to be back in the studio um, with our Basecamp world. Um, and good to good have to you be on. here. Yeah, you've yeah, got a lot going on. You've got a lot going on. I know we're, I was just saying before we turn on the mics, we're going to have you back on very soon um, to talk about this amazing study that uh, the ACCS has just uh, led. And for those of you who don't know David, David is the president of the Association of Classical and Christian Schools. You've been at the, at the president's helm now for how many years? About five. Just about five years, I think. Starting to figure it out now after five years. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> yeah. Really important role that you're in uh, supporting schools literally around the world um, that are a part of our movement. And this study, just real briefly, because that's not what we were talking about in this episode, but I've got to just give a teaser. Tell, tell us about this study. What, is, what are you working well, on? Well, it's really an exciting opportunity. Uh, obviously, in a movement like uh, classical Christian education, that's the restoration of an older movement. We've been making promises for a lot of years, and we've been doing that based on what we've uh, seen in history, but now we have uh, gone out and we've had enough graduates that we've been able to survey alumni ages 24 to 42 and determine what life choices they've made and how they did in college and things like that so we can report on the outcomes. Which is great because most of us, you know, we can tout our kids without even trying, do really well on standardized tests, SATs and all that, but this is really life. So how many different indicators are there you're looking at several hundred right well yes the the questionnaire was 89 pages long so it was quite extensive wow uh, if you're out there and you were one of the uh, victims of having to answer this thing uh thank you very much 89 if you're an alumni, yeah so you're looking at all different aspects of right and so we had to distill that down we've got uh, seven life profiles that uh, the study shows uh, everything from how they live in their christian world how they live uh, in the how they influence the secular world, how they uh, do academically, how they do in their careers. So it was quite a study. It's amazing. Well, we are going to devote an entire podcast coming up very soon to it and then tell you more about how you can read more about it. But David, for today, I thought it'd be helpful. I'm always uh, in my base camp mind trying to figure out how do we help explain this very unique thing we do every day, raising up the next generation. It's not easy and maybe not always obvious. And I was having a conversation with one of our, our parents, a dad at a coffee shop uh, last week, and great guy, committed to the school, um, got a number of kids there, and just in a moment of honesty, just said, I, I got to tell you, I love our school, love what we do, been around for a while. I don't understand why we're so fixated on things like the medieval time period. And, uh, and, and I thought, well, tell me more, what are you talking about? Because I, I know he's read our newsletters, and we've talked about these things, but it, it occurred to me that this is worth taking time to really delve into. And, and I know that hopefully we cover all history periods in our schools, but the medieval period 
seems to be something if you travel around the country, there's often medieval day. And maybe it's just because it's fun to dress up in chain mail and fight with foam swords. And, you know, it, it lends itself. It's kind of a fun period of history. But I wanted you, David, just to share a little bit about what I've come to discover, that it's not that we're just nostalgic people and we like this old history stuff. But there's really something pretty profound here, and, and and but hopefully by the time we get done with this podcast, you're going to get, I, I think, uh, I want to say blown away, but that's just not a very classical thing to say. You're going to be excited about discovering there's something much deeper going on here than maybe we've realized. And I think there's probably teachers listening who teach medieval period, and maybe you've never understood it at this level. So what is the misunderstanding you think people have, David? Well, I think maybe the best way to explain it is the way I learned, which is, uh, when I was in my 20s, I was like most young men. I loved Tolkien and Lewis, right? The the two great authors of the of the yeah. um, uh, famed persuasion. And one of the things that surprised me was that uh, these guys who wrote great books also wrote uh, philosophy, and most of it pointed towards the medievals. And that seemed odd to me because they were obviously pretty smart guys. And on top of that, um, Lewis is one of the probably most profound Christian apologists of all time. And he had a particular affinity for medieval thought. And so it took many, many years for me to kind right. of process that and understand it. And that's what started me down the path. So maybe just continue to reassure. If you're listening, you're thinking, this is probably the podcast I'm going to skip on because these guys are going to go into some kind of esoteric discussion of medieval philosophy, which really has nothing to do with the fact that I've got kids smashing Cheerios in the back seat right now. And I'm trying to figure out the next five things in my life. Why do I want to hear this podcast? Well, I think what you're going to discover is that there is, again, as I just said, a lot more than just a bunch of old literary guys like this time period. So let's, let's, that's my promise, but let's begin really simple. When we talk medieval, David, I'm thinking my first reaction is medieval is, uh, there's medieval times and there's big turkey legs and Disney's <laughs> made a big deal in medieval period. So what is the medieval period? First of all, what is this thing? Well, it's really the Christian era, if you think about it. It's the era of time between the end of the Roman Empire and the Enlightenment. So it's a very big swath. But the part that really influences most of our classical schools is the, you know, let's say, I'll make up some dates here, 1100 to 1600, sometime in, in there. Yeah. And, and it's marked by some very, very big accomplishments. Okay, so the first okay, so my first thought is, are you just going to tell me that it's important because if you care about history, and let's recognize we're in a modern progressive world where history has been revisionist history is alive and well, and if something happened before 1960 in most schools today, it's probably either been retold or it's irrelevant. So we're good historical uh, liberal arts kind of people, so we want to know history, just like Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and we should know that if we're an educated person. Is that what you're saying? Is it just, is this a time period where it's, it was important things happened, so we need to know the history? I mean, I'm sure that's true at a cursory level. Well, not really, not at all. I would rather a student study the philosophy of the medievals than the history of them. And the reason for that is philosophy is, especially for the medievals, is fused over into theology. And so now we're talking about philosophy and theology, and you're looking you've already at, lost me. You, I'm yeah, still, I've I was getting you. excited about turkey legs mm-hmm. and chainmail. Now, so okay. so I'll connect here. Real okay, quick. help me. So yeah. remember, we in the classical movement are about paideia, which is a two dollar word for that might be a three dollar word. Yeah, all right, we'll round up okay. five. Okay, um, it's it's a big word that basically says education is about something other than what we think. We think it's about learning stuff that's going to help us get a job or whatever. Really, it's about the cultivation of virtue. 
And we all know that. I know you've had other uh, speakers on that. So um, that seems like an esoteric purpose, right? The cultivation of virtue. How are you going to do that? Well, all virtues begin with a set of assumptions about the universe and the way it is. Uh, What we call cosmology. Cosmology is basically, when you wake up in the morning, what do you know, without even thinking about it, about everything in the universe? Um, For Christians, one thing you know is God is real. Um, Well, the medievals thought about this to the point that they made everything line up with that one statement, God is real. And so they built a cosmology on that. And this cosmology can be seen, um, I'll tell a classroom story real quick to explain it. Um, In the 11th grade at at Ambrose, um, one of the things they do is they uh, do a a map on the back of the wall of the of the cosmology of the medievals. And can, can I just interrupt? When you're saying cosmology, we're not talking about makeup or something. We're talking about, we're talking, <laughs> I'm just going where people's brains okay, are. Dead. I'm okay. in the coffee shop. Like yeah. what in the world is a cosmology? And what are you even talking about? Are you talking about? Well, it's popular to talk about worldview in Christian circles. Right, exactly. Cosmology is a little different than worldview. Cosmology is a set of assumptions about the universe and the way things are. Um, so I'll give a quick example in this, on this back wall, um, it always struck me that um, our teacher would say it's the wall that des- describes the the uh, medieval worldview, but it would always have planets on it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah. The reason it's that way is because hierarchy was the center of the medieval world. Today, egalitarianism or flatness is the... Uh, quantity that we live in. And and you see that every day. I mean, if you look at the ethics that are coming out in our culture today, um, they're all about equality. Um, there's very little hierarchy. In, it's, it's, in the, I mean, it's an offensive thing to have hierarchy. I mean, it's, it's definitely offensive. Anybody thing. with privilege is immediately oppressing mm-hmm. the, their neighbor. Yeah. And of course, medieval feudalism, the governmental system that most people equate to the medievals, reflected some of that hierarchy. And people don't like that either. But we're not really talking about government hierarchy here. We're talking about the way God made the universe. So the, the medievals laid out the universe in terms of things that are close to God and things that are far from God. And that very beginning, you see it in the stars and the way that they saw the stars. Now, I know this is going to sound a little esoteric, but I'll go through it quickly. The outer stars, the stars that were the closest to heaven, which were called the celestial bodies, were the ones closest to God. Below that, you had the planets, which, of course, the word means wanderer. These were closer uh, celestial bodies that wandered through the heavens in a different way. The moon and the sun were other celestial bodies. All of these things served God. They worked in order to serve God. Man then fell underneath that, and then, of course, Satan, and the furthest from God is hell. That whole string right there sounds pretty esoteric to people. It's like, why does that all matter? Well, it matters because if your footing is based in the idea that hierarchy is the way the universe was built from the very first singularity and that very first burst. Mm -hmm. Everything after it was built with God as the highest thing and the opposite of God of sin being the lowest thing, it changes the way you see everything. So when students, when we're bringing kids into the students or students into the schools and we're trying to get them to understand 
who they are in Christ, the best thing to start with is the hierarchy that God created in the universe. And nobody got that more correct than the medievals. In fact, Lewis says in one of his books, the medievals may have been wrong about what the stars were. They didn't know that they were balls of gas, but they were more correct about who they served yeah. or what they, what they served. Well, what's exciting about this is I suspect pretty much everybody listening, parent, teacher, or otherwise, is thinking, of course we are in this business because we want to shape kind of modern words, our, the worldview of our kids. And I think that what... I mean, what you're saying and what the purpose behind the focusing on this medieval period is that it's actually an even bigger way to frame up just the lens through which a young person sees everything. Their basic questions, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? All of these basic core questions to the human world are even better answered than just in worldview. And we've talked before, worldview is a is an enlightenment term and it's very much only focusing on reason and that's fine. You go to worldview camp and you learn Christian apologetics, nothing wrong with that, but there's way more to the way what drives our soul than just our cognitive uh, resources or understanding. So I I think that's what we're getting at. Yes. And I use, I use the term cosmology. A good friend of mine, Andrew Kern kind of taught me to use that because worldview was kind of narrow Right. And so then this is sort of the aha to me. We're going to take a break and come back in a few minutes and, and really dig into this. But it's like, oh my goodness, I put my child into a classical Christian school because I wanted them to uh, learn to think deeply and I want them to have a Christian worldview. And what we're offering, this is where it's the game changer for me. We're actually presenting something that's even bigger and more profound than probably most of us ever experienced ourselves in our own upbringing around learning Christian truths. I mean, it's, it all fits together, but it's an even deeper, richer way to understand the way the world is put together. Cause everybody works with a, a view of the world. Well, in, in a moment when we come back, we'll, yeah. we'll see how that works in what Sally and Jimmy do every day, every day. Every day of their and, life. and we're going to take a look at some of the things CS Lewis had to say about that too. Let's take a quick break and come back. Cause this is a significant thing. In the meanwhile, I'm going to go get my foam swords out. Cause we want to get ready for medieval day here, since that's such a part of our class this week. Hey, just want to take a moment here at the break to say thank you to so many of you who have come up to me and Kelly and our team at conferences this summer. It's been great to meet you. So appreciate your encouragement. If um, you have a chance to shout out to us, we always love where you're listening from, what's been, what's been encouraging to you, info at BasecampLive.com. And we're also really getting big in social media. Yeah, I mean, encouraging and challenging to meet all these people face-to-face, see what's going on out there. But we can do that. Yeah. We can do that. Uh, and the social media thing is just a great way to, when new episodes drop, it lets you know about that. It's, it's a great way to kind of hear little excerpts from the interviews. So if you're an Instagrammer or a tweeter or a Facebooker or a, what am I leaving out? YouTube. Yeah, we're on the YouTube too. So come check us out. Thanks so much for being a great listener of Basecamp Live. Welcome back to Basecamp Live here with David Goodwin talking about why we focus on this medieval time period. I know a lot of our schools do kind of three-year history rotation, so you kind of come back into the medievals uh, throughout the time uh, of your education, probably five, six times in a K-12 experience. Um, I know, David, a lot of a lot of times I hear um, this idea that it's difficult in our, you talked about an egalitarian culture we live in, and everything is flat, and everything is equal, and everybody's the same. And how offensive and counterintuitive it, it is to say no things are actually hierarchical. And yet when we come to things of our faith, we want our children to bow humbly before a holy God. And it's pretty hard to teach humility 
when everything around our children, even in a lot of Christian circles, is about almost an empowerment idea of be the best you can be, and you are the center of the universe. So when you're talking about the cosmology of the world, I mean, literally starting with the planets all the way down to the Satan and the earthworms, I mean, you're really looking at there is an order to things, and we fit in that order, and our purpose is found in that order. So this is, so what you're getting at is we're not just reading these old books because they're hard to read sometimes and it stretches our brain. That may be true, but there's this rich tapestry woven as the backstory that if our kids start seeing themselves in that story, it changes how they see themselves and how they see the world. So talk more about, this is really interesting. It's Yeah, well, I, I think we all as parents want our kids to grow up and really thrive in life. And if we think about what that means, it means making the right choices. And that's kind of a hard, that's kind of a hard thing to train into children. Yeah. So you have to start where the medievals did. If you have a cosmology where everything's hierarchical, it's easier to see Augustine's view. And now I, I know I'm bringing in another, um, you know, it's all right, old dead guy. But Augustine is the basically the father of modern modern Christianity uh, in some contexts, or at least he's the most influential man outside of Christ and the apostles in Christendom. And he's, he taught something that was taken very seriously by the medievals because of this cosmology. And that was that as we live our lives, every choice we make is based upon an ethical or a, a stacked infrastructure of goods. Some things are better and some things are worse. Now today we see things as moral or immoral, which is a little bit true and a little bit false, where what we've got is you know, in a flat egalitarian world, things are either good or they're bad. But then we run into things in scripture that don't quite work out that way. Right. And the the one that I think, at least when I was a kid, it always was, I struggled with it, uh, where Christ says, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't come unto Mm me. What, you know, and so we (laughs) think maybe he's using hyperbole or we, we, we don't understand the Christian view. The Christian view is that all good things can be evil. If, if they're in the wrong order, mm. if they're disordered, they they can become evil. And Christ said that after someone, as I recall in the parable, had said that he was going to go. Um, was, I can't remember the exact context, but the the context was uh, they wanted to do something for their parents before they followed Christ. Mm. And, and he says, "Unless you hate your mother and father, you can't follow me." Mm. Well, what he means is loving me is more important than loving your father and mother but of course the entirety of scripture everything else about moms and dads is you should love and honor your parents right so it seems to be a contradiction but it's not in an augustinian worldview and it's not in a medieval worldview because they understand goods are ordered so let's get i want to get really practical in this because i'm back to the dad in the coffee shop and and i would say to him don't you want your kids to order their affections we talk about this as one of the values of a classical christian education is that our kids love what God loves that what our loves we're going to love something are we going to love our iPhone are we going to love the things that that God is concerned with I I wonder what so David help me understand what does that look like I mean so we're reading a particular book in to a seventh or eighth grader can you drill into a specific well um a couple books we read um at least the school I was at um the Consolational Philosophy um is is one by a medieval author that really personifies um, seeking wisdom, and it and it hierarchically looks through um, the tradition of seeking truth and wisdom, 
and putting some things subject to others. You've got things like the Song of Roland, which is another work that uh, we read written in the medieval age. What grade typically reads that? Um, I think that's eighth usually. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and and the Song of Roland is an interesting one for me because it's the story basically of the key battle uh, that that uh, defeated the Muslims in the conquest of Spain. But in reality, the Song of Roland doesn't really reflect the historical record very well. In fact, uh, the characters and what happens don't really make sense um, if you know the actual story of Charles Martel and Charlemagne and, you know, this medieval time. The reason we read it is because the story is about friendship and loyalty and duty. Um, Things that can be put in, in, when you see them in a medieval, when you read them, when you absorb them in a medieval hierarchy, you do it in a way that you can't do it with a modern book because all modern books are constrained to the, the foundations or the cosmology of the modernity. So you have to pick it up from something that the medievals wrote. So when they're writing on something like, I mean, so a parent would say, I want my child to have a, a sense of uh, loyalty and duty. Um, those would be good things. Now, how do I train them in that? I can tell them to be dutiful, or I can have them read a book in which the character is having to make personal sacrifices to be faithful to something higher than themselves. So yeah. other, it's basically they're role modeling what is, I mean, they're seeing a character live out this trait, and that's being celebrated. So it's giving them that vision of an ordered world that's different maybe than what they're hearing. Yeah, when we started out the broadcast, I talked about Tolkien and Lewis. One yeah. of the interesting things there, Lewis was criticized by Tolkien. <clears throat> I don't know how many people know this, but he was criticized by Tolkien for writing children's stories. Mm-hmm. And Lewis was crazy Chronicles like... of Narnia, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. And, and, and the intellect of Lewis was capa- had the capacity to write things on the line of Tolkien. So why was he writing children's stories? And that was the criticism of Tolkien towards Lewis. Lewis was crazy like a fox. He knew that the best time to reach kids is in those young ages. And the Chronicles of Narnia are deeply medieval. Medieval concepts are spread throughout them. Um, There's the famous line, uh, well, famous in our circles, maybe not (laughs) with the parents, but where um, Eustace, um, I think in the uh, Don Treader, Tell informs, uh, I think it's actually a fallen star and a character, I think maybe named Ramonde, I can't remember the story exactly, but he says, uh, in our world, stars are balls of gas. They're not actually people. And he says, that's what they're made of, but that's not what they are. Hmm. And that's the medieval view that those stars were put up there by God to glorify him. And unless they serve their purpose, they are cast down. And unless and that was the view of the medievals, that's what a falling star was was a ca- was cast out of heaven because it didn't serve its purpose. Now you can see where that isn't actually true about a meteorite, right? If if an actual star fell into our planet, we'd have a a bit of a problem. Yeah. What it what's true about it is those stars are put there in a hierarchy to order themselves towards the glory of God. If they fail to do that. They will fail in their purpose, and they cannot yeah. thrive. And I can think of nothing more that I want my kids yeah. to take with them in life is that God's put you here for a purpose. Seek it and serve in it. Which is, again, we, we've talked about this epidemic of depression and, and purposelessness. And, and I think that's, again, this was the very thing that they were actually solving in the minds of the reader. And 
So again, we're not just talking turkey legs and chain mail. We're talking about a way to see the world. So I wanted you had um, talked to Lewis. I know one of Lewis's books called The Discarded Image, which is not a light read by any stretch. Um, he's basically what setting up uh, the reason why one should read the medievals. I mean, yeah, the title a, of the book means the image of the medievals was discarded, mm-hmm. and he's challenging that we maybe shouldn't have done that. Which we have discarded, all except the turkey legs. But I want to read this one little piece because it reinforces what you're saying. Lewis writes in here, he says, at, at his most characteristic, the medieval man was not a dreamer nor a wanderer. He was an organizer, a codifier, and a builder of systems. And he wanted, quote, a place for everything and everything in its right place. Distinction, definition, tabulation were his delight. Um, though full of turbulent activities, he was equally full of the impulse to formalize them. So... Again, don't we want this for our our for ourselves and for our children to have that confidence that we have purpose, things fit together for a reason, the world is not chaotic. This is all part of what this ordering uh, seems like it's doing. Well, and we take that for granted. I mean, we we may say, "Oh, okay, so is that a good thing that the medievals were ordered and that they were they were people of categories, etc." We've got to realize that in the grand scheme of cosmology, that's a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough to believe that this ordered universe with Christ at the center is put together in such a way that we can comprehend it, that we can study it. One of the famous time periods in the medievals that started in about 1240 is the scholastic era. It was the beginning of the modern university. All of that was begun because the belief was we can see the system that God has put here and we need to be in our highest calling is to find a way to see the truth of Christ rightly ordered. But and that's what they did. But don't, I mean, the criticism of the medievals is, is also that they were very mystical and there were um, a lot, there's a lot of um, unsavory uh, spirituality, I guess, back in those days. And be, I mean, is that, I mean, you think about a lot of, I think more classical reform type people tend to cling to the enlightenment era because it feels more, familiar it's more of a cognitive and this seemed a little bit more savage maybe to use a lewis term yes well and that's funny too because that's basically the the story of the story of humanity is to tell the story of your neighboring village in the context that you would want your village to be the hero and their (laughs) them to be the villain right revisionist history yes and so the enlightenment gave us that story the enlightenment told us that the medievals were backward because they were superstitious remember right. that word oh, yeah. superstitious right there with emotionalists or you know right or, or whatever was and i believed that for the longest yeah. time i believed that they couldn't have anything to offer because they were backward superstitious people who didn't see the world rightly but who was saying that the people telling the story were people who were what are called materialists they were the enlightenment group that said all that exists is the material, physical universe. There is no God. There is no Christ above, right? Now, these were very early on. These were you know, 1700s materialists, so they hadn't quite thrown God completely out yet, but they certainly had taken him out of the equation on a daily basis. And so for them, the idea that spirits could be walking around on the earth, that the trees could have animation, that there could be actually in some way... Um, demons and uh, devils and witches and those sorts of things. Uh, That was all superstition, and it was something that needed to be gotten rid of. Um, And so they labeled the entire Middle Age with that that stuff. And I'm I'm sure that, you know, we all know there were abuses of people who... 
But the know. pendulum swings so far in the other direction. Well, we, well, and really, when you read the medievals, the guys who were paid, a, you know, who paid attention to it, uh, even people as late as um, Newton, Newton, <laughs> the way we got to the moon mm-hmm. was based on medieval philosophy. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever put that together. But that's well, amazing. Be, yeah. Well, Newton. Wrote How is more, that? Yeah. Well, Newton wrote more on philosophy or on theology and philosophy than he did on math and science. But he he was an integrator. He still thought, in some limited way, like a like a uh, medievalist that God made everything and all he had to do is figure out how it worked. So he developed calculus and obviously in conjunction with, I think it was Leibniz and some others, but he developed calculus and created the laws of the universe because he believed the laws existed. Not because materialism existed, but because God existed. So and maybe another way to say this, David, you're, we want young people to think kind of multidimensionally and I, in the sense that there's a material world, but there's a spiritual world. And again, I can't imagine a, parent or teacher listening of course we want that we teach ephesian kids ephesians 6 to our kids about we're wrestling not just against flesh and blood so we talk kind of medieval out of one side of our mouth but then we turn around and we want an education for our kids it's practical and that it's going to help them get ready for a job and i mean of course we want those are good things too but we somehow miss the whole point of we want them to think and i'm calling it my word here multidimensionally or thinking in terms of the the material world and the spiritual world. We don't want them to be dualistic and break these things apart. And it seems like we're, yeah, we're it, actually... It, claim- it's interesting the way you say that because medievals wouldn't see a, a fine distinction between exactly. the material world and the spiritual world. But I think it, when we are we educate or parent people, we actually think, well, the spiritual thing, that's what we do with family devotions and our church. Now, you people should be educating my child so that they can go get a job. So, David, thinking about modern movies, videos, uh, it's such a part of our culture. We want our kids to be wise when they watch and consume media. So give us an example of maybe how modern media is actually twisting this cosmology in a way that we don't even realize. Well, you know, it's through the heroes, as I said. And the thing about heroes is is that they contain um, sort of ethical behaviors that the way a good muse or storyteller, or in this case, movie maker, uh, can, can twist the story, they can make you love something. That may not actually be as lovable. I guess one of the examples I can come up with uh, recently, I went with my son to uh, the Ford uh, versus Ferrari movie. Yeah. An excellent movie, by the way. Um, That's an interesting story because it's told from the American point of view. And of course, the story is about a mid 1960s auto race called Le Mans and the the fact that Ferrari had won it for many years and uh, Ford wanted to win it. And so they set a team about to do it. And it's got a classic, um, not in the classical sense, but a, an American hero in it. And the, Matt Damon plays um, Shelby, Carol Shelby, who's the uh, designer of the Ford car. Um, and, and then um, in the movie, what you see is he's the hero. But there's a few things he does that are interesting. The Ford is bent on doing this at any cost. They're willing to spend any amount of money to do it. And the character it's like a cowboy character. He wears a cowboy hat, as Carol Shelby does. He cuts corners. He does things um, sort of uh, like he, uh, at one point, pilfers some stopwatches from the Ferrari team. Uh, <laughs> and it's seen as a heroic thing because he's figuring out how to beat uh, Ferrari rugged at their own game. It's yeah. a rugged individual. Yeah. Now, I happen to have been familiar with the story before I went to the movie because I am a car buff a little bit. And I always saw Ferrari 
as a bit of the hero in the story, even though after, mostly because he held out for three years against one of the most powerful economic engines you can imagine with Ford. But Ferrari, he conducted the Ferrari team with a much higher sense of almost duty and a love of the sport. Mm-hmm. He would, he, um, one of the lines in the uh, movie that's really telling, uh, Carol Shelby, uh, the Ferrari team rolls up with their cars and they're so beautiful. And the driver says, man, those are some pretty cars. And Shelby says, looks ain't everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that cowboy attitude. Ver- cowboy versus more of an Italian aesthetic of beauty. Like this can't just function as a machine. And there's a beauty to the art of racing. I mean, mm-hmm. it was even deeper than like aesthetic beauty. It's the art of racing is the art of of being the best at your craft. Mm-hmm. And Enzo Ferrari is in many ways uh, reflective of that. His ethics of racing were in everything he did um, in the way he ran the race team. So without going into too much more detail, the, the story I always tell with my sons was, yep, Ford did manage to win in the end. Ferrari lost. Um, but today, would you rather own a Ford or a Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> That's our new sponsor, by the way, Dave Ferrari. <laughs> No, I wish. Um, Anyways, it, you can see how the hero was shaped. So the that's hero, your point, is that yeah. you're going to come out of there if you're... Uh, it's going to reinforce the American individual cowboy exactly. ethic. And there is something to the American ethic. Sure. But what we want to do is cultivate students who know what's being done to them in the theater. Yeah. They, we don't want them going in with blank, uh, well, blank souls that are shaped by and, uh, the ethics yeah. on the screen. We want it shaped by... We want them to assess what they're seeing. And I pre- this is the bottom line. I mean, it's one thing to think, well, the worst thing my kids are going to get is they're going to be a cowboy American individual. That's not the point. That's not necessarily even a bad thing. It's think how many other uh, political, ethical uh, agendas that are embedded into media today that our kids are assuming exactly. whatever, I'm a victim, whatever, mm-hmm. fill in the blank uh, issue. And that all comes back to the medievals. If you can rightly order goods, you can see... That yes, there is something valuable to pragmatism yeah. to the idea that win it, win you know, do creative things to win. Yeah, that's there's something good to that. But is that a higher good than the art and craft right. of doing a good thing beautifully? Well, I think the medievals would have driven a Ferrari. I think that's the point. Yeah. Well, I, I think they're a little medieval still <laughs> in in Italy, but yeah. yeah, no, that's a great that's a great example. And again, I think it reinforces again we're trying to train a way of discerning and thinking and really uh, preempting. Uh, the vul- the vulnerability of so many young people a day that just don't even have the frame to be able to discern is what being given to me right or true, or I'm just sort of going to take it at face value because the world's flat and everything's equal. And in this day and age, that's the most dangerous place to leave right. your kids. Well, if your kids are in a place where they are shaped by the stories around them, they will be um, in bigger trouble down the line. Yeah. So it's fascinating. So who would have thought that teaching the medievals and a bunch of potentially hard to read books of an era long forgotten is actually part of the secret sauce to helping to raise a generation to be adaptable and protected and wise and engaging in the future. I mean, it just seems so counterintuitive, but that's the very thing we're doing in our classical Christian schools. Yep. Awesome. We'll have you back, Dave. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of Basecamp Live. Guys, we know it is not easy raising the next generation. This idea of ancient future education, it's so valuable. It's so important. We're all excited about it. We'd love to hear about you 
and we want to help support you in what you're doing. So find us, tweet us at Basecamp Live. If you're on Instagram, look for us there. Send us an email, info at basecamplive.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let us help you carry the load along this journey and encourage us as we go through this journey as well. Thank you so much.